Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. When you picture a public defender, what comes to mind? Prestige TV or Hollywood legal dramas might inform the image. Loose ties, crinkled suits, bags under the eyes. These folks are stressed out, overworked, and undercompensated. But something pop culture tends to overlook is how stretching these attorneys so thin affects everyday people who are caught up in the justice system. Washington state is one of the many areas across the country with a severe shortage of public defenders. For someone who was recently arrested, that can mean long wait times and complicated choices before any attorney is assigned to help them navigate the legal system and maybe go to trial. Daniel Beekman is a staff reporter for The Seattle Times who's been covering the issue and some possible solutions. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for being on Soundside. Thanks for having me on. So when we talk about a shortage of public defenders, what does that mean? I mean, how severe is the problem that we're talking about? In terms of what the crisis looks like, uh, in some counties that literally just don't have enough public defenders to represent all the people who need that defense, they have a, you know, there are a certain number of cases coming through being prosecuted in that county, misdemeanors, gross misdemeanors, felonies. And because of the case of limits, you need uh, a certain number of bodies, whether staff defenders or Uh, private attorneys on contract with the counties to do public defense. You need a certain number of people to cover all those cases. And in some counties, there just aren't enough people to cover all those cases. And because of that, defendants who are supposed to get a public defender, if they can't afford to hire their own, that's sort of a bedrock uh, right uh, based in the U.S. and Washington state constitutions, they're supposed to get a public defender basically as soon as as they're uh, brought to court. And they're not getting them right away. They're waiting for weeks. Uh, In some cases, they've waited for months over the last couple of years. And so in some counties, that's what it looks like, where people are waiting in jail or out of jail without an attorney. And then in other counties, like King County, it looks a little bit different, where there are literally, there are enough public defenders to represent everybody without them having to wait for a long time. But especially uh, in King County and some other counties with the most serious cases, so high-level felonies. Because in Washington State, in order to represent a defendant accused of a high-level felony, you need to have some certifications. To get those certifications, you need to have taken lower-level cases to trial, which requires years of experience. So not anybody can walk in the door and represent those defendants. And for that reason, because of attrition, you have a very small number of high-level felony qualified public defenders representing a lot of people. And they might be under the caseload limits, but those limits are based on data and recommendations from the 1970s. So you have people who are just carrying a huge number in King County of really intense high-level felony cases. And so there, it's not as much a literal shortage where people are going without attorneys, but it's more of people aren't sort of seeing and talking to their attorneys as much as, you know, anyone would like because those people are so burdened with big cases. 
Is there any particular area of this state where this is felt most acutely? I know we've talked to folks in Yakima County before about this shortage. Is this a tougher problem in rural areas? Or it sounds like the problem is simply different in more urban areas with more high-level felonies. It's bad in different places for for different reasons. So uh, Yakima County, it's a little bit better now. The weight, uh, according to the head of public defense there, who I talked to a few weeks ago, was down to three weeks instead of six weeks, which it was uh, maybe a year or so ago. Um, but Yakima has had trouble. In the sort of smallest, most remote rural counties, they obviously have a smaller number of cases, but they have the biggest problem just getting attorneys, period. So there was an interesting blog by an attorney who is with the State Bar Association. He was last year's president, I believe. And he wrote about how, forget public defense, like there are fewer than 30 people practicing law in 10 or more Washington state counties, any kind of law. (laughs) And so I talked to some folks in the Soton County, which is the far southeast corner of Washington state. It's pretty small. It's pretty rural. And there are very few people even practicing the law there. And they only have one person on contract to uh, be a public defender for felony cases in the Sutton County. And he lives in Spokane, which is about a hundred miles away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not a good situation. It's, you know, in, in Okanagan County, which is also a small rural County in North central Washington, a bunch of the people they have on contract that they've been able to plug holes with don't live there, including they live even at least one or two, I think over the mountains of Western Washington, So they're zooming in for almost everything, which is not ideal. And then I focus quite a bit uh, on the Tri-Cities, which it's a population there with Pasco, Kennewick, and Richland. So it's not the smallest sort of community in the state, but partly because there are these two counties that share the Tri-Cities. Pasco is in Franklin County, Kennewick and Richland are in Benton County, and they're just all together, separated by the Columbia River. Uh, and there aren't really enough attorneys to go around. People just keep moving from one county to the other. And they're sort of in competition, not intentionally, but they're in competition for a shallow pool of attorneys. Yeah, for recruitment. Right there. Yeah. Sure. And so, so yeah, so it's bad in different ways in different places. That's the short answer. So you talked about the fact that a right to a speedy trial is enshrined in our Constitution. I mean, what does it mean when folks are sitting in jail waiting for representation, presumably under our system, innocent until proven guilty. I mean, what happens to somebody who's just sitting there waiting for an attorney? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, in my mind, there's sort of two bedrock things at uh, stake here. There's the just right to representation. So, you know, Constitution and the case law says you're supposed to have an attorney. And if you can't afford one, one is supposed to be provided for you. So that's the first thing, you know, people appearing in court and sitting in jail and having out of custody restrictions placed on them without somebody really representing them. They might talk to somebody in the local public defender's office, you know, very briefly when they appear in court or when they're arraigned or bail is set, but like there's nobody really there for them who's representing them as a client. And so there's that right to representation that sort of they're going without. And then, like you said, there's a speedy trial. So I focused sort of to open our story on 
this scene in a courtroom in Benton County that I went and saw. And you have, in some cases, you know, it's every week. Uh, there's a docket for, uh, I believe, the city of Richland. And you have, you know, two dozen people, sometimes more, who are there sometimes for the first, second, third, fourth time they've appeared and told to come. And like, we're hopefully we'll have an attorney for you. And they, they're told again, we don't have an attorney for you. And they're sort of given this choice, which is, okay, you can keep moving towards trial without an attorney. Your, your speedy trial clock is ticking. You can keep it ticking. So um, 60 or 90 debate days, depending on whether you're in or out of custody and hope that by the time you get to trial, you will have an attorney or you can kind of bank on um, by the time you get to trial, you still don't have an attorney and then <laughs> your case should get dismissed because you haven't had representation or you can make the call of, you know, I want to figure this out, but I need an attorney. So I'm going to agree to pause my speedy trial clock and keep this case hanging over my head, sort of forego that right of speedy trial so I can wait to get a public defender. And it's kind of two bad choices. You know, one of the the sort of advocates I talked to said, it's, it's not okay that that choice is even made. It's not that there are two bad choices. It's that it's not constitutional because, you know, even if like there's this idea that people are agreeing to pause their clock and wait, they don't have representation, real representation. So what's their alternative? Yeah. And how can you expect them to even make that choice if you know, they have no one advising them? So so it can look like that. I mean, in extreme cases where people are sitting in jail for weeks or months without an attorney, in one case, a guy, a defendant in uh, Franklin County last year, eventually got fed up with waiting and pleaded guilty basically because he needed to get out of jail and he didn't want to keep waiting for a public defender. His case ended up getting picked up and an appellate attorney in Seattle uh, ended up asking the state Supreme Court to take a look at it and and review it and sort of say like, hey, is this is this valid or should this guilty plea be thrown out because he did it because he wanted to get out of jail without a, a defender? And the prosecution responded by saying, OK, you know, basically drops this appeal. We'll vacate his conviction and make it all go away. And so that's what they did. And for that reason, the state Supreme Court never ruled on it. But that's sort of an extreme example. And in other cases, when somebody finally does get a public defender, they've moved to get the case dismissed, you know, and so then somebody walks away, can walk in theory, walk away from a case. Uh, Maybe they were guilty, but they can walk away based on them not having representation for so long. Some cases, the prosecutors, because there's no public defender there to argue the other side, They'll sort of drop the case, they call it, uh, without prejudice, which means your case is gone for now, but we can reserve the right to arrest, get you arrested and bring you back to court and start this process all over again at some future date when there's more public defenders. So it can look like a lot of different ways, but those are some of the things that can happen. It's a mess. I mean, in short, it's uh, not serving anybody. It's not serving the public interest to make sure that somebody who's done a crime is having to serve some sort of punishment for that. It's not serving those defendants who are in limbo for way longer than they should be without representation, without guidance, even on these offers that they're being made to either, you know, extend that uh, period of time or to, you know, try to get the case dismissed, whatever. Yeah, it just sounds like it's really messed up. Daniel. And my question is, why? What's behind this shortage? Is it just 
We don't have enough money to hire attorneys for different counties. One thing to point out is that this is not just a Washington problem. This is a problem across the country in many states and many communities. Oregon, just right next door, has had huge problems with this over the last couple of years that look somewhat different, but somewhat similar. There are less people have, have been going to law school in recent years than there were before. When they get out of law school, the people who go aren't entering into public defense as much because they need to repay their student loans and they need to you know, support themselves with high housing costs and public defense doesn't pay enough. It's a stressful job. People don't want <laughs> so much stress in their lives. Even the people who are coming out of law school, there are COVID created backlogs uh, and a lot of some longtime older public career public defenders retired or quit after COVID or during COVID. And, you know, I talked to a lot of public defenders who said the work has changed. So if you think about in the last decade or so, the diff the changes in law enforcement with police body cameras, with surveillance video being much more common, those things can make a case just take a lot longer. A lot of attorneys talk to me about just reviewing video, just reviewing video, untold hours. It could be a DWI, you know, gross misdemeanor case or something like that. It doesn't have to be a murder case. And so the caseloads that, okay, well, for, you know, 150 felonies in a year or 400 misdemeanors in a year um, look different now as a caseload or a workload than they did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so, yeah, a combination of factors. The workload, the conditions is not encouraging a lot of new law students coming out of school to say, hey, that's the job I want to do. I mean, what are the solutions that counties are looking at to try to attract more people? Um, and is there a conversation about changing the way these positions are funded in order to try to get more people on the job? Yeah, I'd say there are about sort of like four different categories of solution or potential solution. And uh, I talked to state Supreme Court Justice Stephen Gonzalez, and he sort of said, we need long and short-term solutions from every branch of government. So we need a bit of each of these things, probably. But one is funding. So unlike some other states where a lot of public defense is funded, all or a lot of it is funded at the state level, in Washington, it's almost exclusively funded by each county on its own. It's like 3%, something like that, of public defense funding at the county level in Washington state comes directly from the state that varies county by county, but the vast mass majority comes from the counties. So the association of Washington counties and a number of specific counties are actually suing the state of Washington over this saying similar to the conversation that was had some years ago with um, public education in Washington, K through 12 education so saying this should be a state responsibility. The state needs to help out more. It's a state constitutional issue after all. Yeah. And, and there was a bill in the legislative, the current legislative session proposed to increase state funding that hasn't gone anywhere. But that's one issue. Uh, a, a second solution um, has to do with caseload limits. So a National American Bar Association report came out last year updating, you know, these very outdated nationwide recommendations for caseload limits that Washington State current standards are are based on the date to sort of back to the 1970s and saying here are some what we think 
today is actually realistic and appropriate, much, much lower caseload limits. And so there are a lot of people around the state in this industry who are saying, if we put in new caseload limits that cut the workloads in half or something like that, then you would see a lot more people willing to stay, willing to apply to do those jobs. It's a little bit tricky because if you cut them in half overnight, that would mean you need twice as many public defenders as you do now to handle the same number of cases. And there's already a shortage. But the idea is that over time, you can sort of break that cycle of nobody wanting to do the job if you change the caseload standards. There is a school of thought that says, well, one reason we have this problem is because we're just prosecuting too many cases. And especially with lower level or nonviolent cases, we can think about alternatives to prosecution, whether that be, you know, getting people help or restorative justice, I don't know, or, you know, drug treatment or various other things. And if we have less cases being prosecuted, then this, the crunch will lessen. And the fourth sort of bucket is to try to increase the pipeline and get more people into these jobs. There's a bill that's been working its way through the legislature this year to basically establish a state-managed sort of internship recruitment training program, especially for public defenders and prosecutors. There's also shortage of prosecutors in rural areas of the state. And it could still pass, but the most costly, but arguably the most important provision in that bill at the beginning was sort of a loan repayment incentive. So they're looking at that for public defenders in rural areas. That provision got got cut out of the bill at some point. So I don't think it's currently in there. Uh, so some people I talked to said, like, almost what's the point of doing a new internship program if it doesn't have that component? Yeah. So we've got, you know, funding solutions. We've got caseload solutions. We've got pipeline and um, looking at the ways to make it easier for students who are in law school to go into public defense. I mean, there's all these solutions, but it sounds like any one piece of these won't work without the others. I mean, it's sort of a um, collective action problem for the solutions. You can't cut caseload without vastly increasing the number of attorneys available, for example. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously some interaction between the different variables for sure. And it'll be interesting to see there could be sort of a something that forces action. You know, if if a defendant sues over this issue, for example, and the case gets all the way up to the state Supreme Court and it's the right case, you know, that could change the equation. It's happened before in sort of the realm of public defense. So uh, the number of people I talked to have said at some point somebody's going to sue over this or multiple people are going to sue and that could sort of force the issue. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. Daniel Beekman is a staff reporter for the Seattle Times. You know, this is a, a huge issue that a lot of counties are facing across the state. And you did a great job digging in, especially in the Tri-Cities um, and in King County, as what it, what it actually looks like to have not enough public defenders um, to make our justice system work the way it's supposed to. So thank you for your reporting. And I really encourage folks to check it out in the Seattle Times. Thanks, Daniel. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. 
Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.